0: On to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Ryan Hunt to the show. Ryan Hunt has degrees in physics and bioengineering from the University of Georgia. Ryan has a passion for circular technologies, including algae, photosynthesis, and thermoplastic compounding. Ryan co-founded Algex that creates sustainable technologies for environmental restoration and biomaterials under the Bloom brand. His team collaborates with government and corporate partners for cleaning air and water pollution and transforming waste into consumer products. Ryan, how are you doing today?
1: Hi, Raj. Thank you for having me today.
0: Ryan, I'm very excited to dig into our conversation. And I'd like to start with what is an eco-pioneer or who is an eco-pioneer?
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's people looking to push the boundaries of sustainability, trying to find value in waste and think about uh, materials in a new way, and particularly materials that can provide environmental restoration purposes. So you know, with our company, we focus on algae. We think algae is, a, is an undervalued resource in the world. It's ubiquitous around the planet. And we want to see more companies doing more things using algae.
0: I appreciate you expanding on the definition. And since you mentioned algae, can you share with the audience or give the audience an overview of Algix and your role at the organization?
1: Yes. So I'm the co-founder and chief technology officer for Algix and our brand, Bloom Sustainable Materials. And for the past eleven years, we've been using algae as a tool for environmental restoration where we clean water capture carbon, and produce a renewable material that can be used as an ingredient in a wide range of consumer products. So we essentially use the algae in its natural form, and that, nat- that algae is, is used to replace a percentage of petroleum-based or traditional plastics in finished products.
0: How do we end up with a finished product that can help replace some of those products?
1: So we produce pellets. Our, our, our business is really one of compounding. So our part of the value chain is to work with government agencies and utility companies to set up either environmental restoration projects or to set up environmental protection projects where we intercept the uh, pollution, the emissions directly from the factories, such as wastewater treatment facilities uh, or power plants. Uh, we also work with Uh, government agencies and contractors that are cleaning up wild algae blooms. So essentially lake cleanups or lake restoration that removes uh, what's called eutrophication. And eutrophication is a fancy word for essentially water pollution. And with too much eutrophication, the water body can actually release methane and carbon dioxide, as opposed to being a sink for carbon dioxide, it can actually release greenhouse gases versus absorb them. So as the planet is, is increasing its levels of water pollution due to more human activities and not enough water treatment technologies in place, particularly in developing countries, the result is that a lot of our uh, common you know, freshwater resources are becoming significantly impacted by harmful uh, algae blooms and other issues.
0: So recently... Two episodes ago, I published a conversation that I had with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Rob Moyer, and he was doing a project down in Florida helping encourage lawn owners, so homeowners, to stop using certain pesticides and fertilizers because they were causing algae blooms in the waterways. Is that an environmental restoration project you would get involved involved with?
1: Yeah, in in a roundabout way. So in that example, uh, we had a project back before COVID uh, where it was essentially funded by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers because they are in a way responsible for discharging uh, nutrient laden water from Lake Okeechobee in Florida. And Lake Okeechobee has a variety of of nutrient rich inputs. There's there's farming, there's there's sewer systems, you know, septic systems. There's uh, maybe other other industries that uh, lead to nutrients building up in that water body. And there's two dams that are released that release that nutrient laden water to the coastlines. And so the canals and the coasts can be negatively impacted by this excess levels of nutrients. And some of that's coming from the collection on Lake Okeechobee. Some of it's coming from the, the, the communities and, and lawns and uh, wastewater plants that are closer to the coast. But at the end of the day, we're battling a similar issue. It's, it's phosphorus, it's nitrogen that's making its way into the water. It's, it's creating the conditions for algae blooms, for photosynthesis to occur in the water column. And so uh, with the Army Corps and our partners, AECOM, uh, they actually deployed technology that we had developed on fish farms earlier on in our company's history when we were ourselves trying to figure out how to efficiently harvest algae out of freshwater bodies for our own supply chain. And so we developed a mobile platform that operated on uh, catfish Farms. So it was a 25 foot long, about eight foot wide trailer, and it has a bunch of equipment on it that essentially uses air bubbles and, and, uh, and a little bit of salt to coagulate the algae, which means they essentially, instead of it being like green Kool-Aid, they start to clump up and you get, you know, they, they settle out of solution and they can be separated using micron sized air bubbles that float them. To the surface, and then you essentially skim off the thick algae paste into a collection vessel. Um, so our, our units would run about 200 gallons per minute, uh, maybe a little bit higher, a little bit lower, depending on the concentration. And that would allow us to harvest and clean over a quarter million gallons of water per day, typically. And, um, and so what we developed for these fish farms ended up being quite interesting for mobile restoration in canals and lakes. It is a demonstration tool. So we've done a lot of demonstrations for government agencies that are being faced with having to solve uh, algae bloom problems, harmful algae bloom problems, particularly in drinking water reservoirs and, you know, tourism-rich areas, you know, public areas. So uh, we've done several projects over the years with AECOM, one of our customers, of course, being the U.S. Army Corps, but also other agencies as well in New York and in Florida. And we're hoping this grows. Uh, we really need to be able to deploy, uh, you know, a, a rapid mitigation technique against areas that might uh, have harmful algae blooms. But, you know, the the scale of doing that is, is important. But if we can actually intercept the pollution before it's released into the water, it becomes a lot more efficient. And so our goal long term is not to keep the environment in some perpetual harmful algae bloom state. Just to have algae, but rather let's clean up the lakes. Let's collect the algae and the nutrients and get it out of there as a near-term solution or near-term restoration project where we can valorize that biomass that's coming from those sources in a way that helps support the project, but also find out where's the nutri- where are the nutrients coming from in the first place. And so let's work upstream and tackle the problem at the source as much as possible. It's not always possible, but where possible Let's try to cultivate algae in a more engineered way at you know, utility facilities, at factories, at textile plants, at the water utilities themselves. And that gives them a new agricultural commodity that can be produced off their waste. So you'll see a lot of facilities installing anaerobic digestion for generating biogas and renewable energy. Uh, or in this case, we're essentially taking that n- nutrient, the nitrogen, the phosphorus and producing a biomass that can be sold as a dry product in a commercial market with relatively high value.
0: So I think you've just changed my perspective on the word nutrient. I always imagined a nutrient to be something positive and something you'd want more of. But I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, in this case, a nutrient is not a good thing. Is that correct?
1: Well, when we say nutrient, we're talking about plant nutrients in P and K, nitrogen, uh, phosphorus and potassium and carbon. CO2 is a critical nutrient and they're essential for life. But in the, the way the problem that we have is that we generate a lot of fresh water that is contaminated with small amounts and trace amounts of ammonia and nitrates and phosphates. Uh, in carbonates, and just infused with CO2 from higher concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere. All of these things lead to uh, accelerated phytoplankton growth and algae growth. And if you look at the planet as a whole, the phytoplankton or the, the algae are around the planet in their 30,000 different species of algae, so it's not like it's just one thing. It's this massive class of ancient organisms that Live in every and live in the soil. They live in lakes. They live in rivers and canals and estuaries and in the ocean. And they are responsible for over half of the oxygen produced on the planet, which makes them as if not more impactful than the rainforests. Yet, you know, we we talk a lot about how important it is to to, to you know not cut down the rainforest and, and to, exa- to conserve the rainforest and to try to regrow the, the rainforests. Um, but we really don't know how to leverage this this algae based capacity on the planet. And so there's been a lot of research going back to the 70s on viewing the exponential growth rate of algae as an opportunity to capture and utilize waste CO2 from, you know, the CO2 pipelines that are being built around the country, around the world, and power that sequestration with sunlight using photosynthesis and as opposed to storing the carbon in the soil like we do with plants under, you know, regenerative processes Instead, we're looking at capturing that carbon in the form of biomass and then converting that biomass into everyday products. And so we feel that this process is one that can be scaled and is really critical to the long-term survivability of, and sustainability of the planet in terms of the materials that we extract from the planet and utilize to make everyday products that we, that we love and, and require.
0: Now, how did you and your co-founder come up with the idea to harvest algae?
1: Well, in, in graduate school at the University of Georgia, I, was, uh, I started with turning pine trees into green crude oil. So we were running pine trees and other agricultural waste products into a thermochemical conversion process called pyrolysis. And this essentially yielded a, a, a dark crude oil that smelled like a campfire. Um, but it was my job to break it apart, analyze it, figure out what it was made out of using different you know, uh, analytical techniques and uh, and really figure out find out its value and what how the processing impacted the quality of the oil and you know it looked very much like crude oil really uh, I mean there was there' was some issues that needed some purification and processing but um, with scale all those things seemed you know viable so that was where I kind of uh, got first introduced into this concept of treating plants as, you know, as oil or as a, as a renewable resource and converting it. And so now you'll see, I mean, I think Shell just announced they're, they're, they're using fissure tropes to convert um, biomass into, you know, essentially jet fuel or, you know, or, you know, fungible fuels. Um, so those processes are there, but the big challenge has been, there's the, all this algae is growing. These, blo- these blooms are happening all around the world. There's this massive opportunity to, to utilize this organism but it hasn't really happened yet. So the scale of the production, it's all very research level. It's, it's academic, it's at universities. You know, There's been, and I'd say in the 2007 when I first got involved, was kind of the first major reinvestment since the, you know, the government research from the 70s and 80s. Um, and so when that happened, there was big money. You know, Bill Gates Foundation, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP. I mean, we had, there was over a billion dollars Invested into algae biofuels in the mid to late 2000s, and that was going pretty well until the price of oil collapsed with the fracking boom in the U.S. and a massive decrease in oil prices around 2014. Uh, that happened to coincide <laughs> with the uh, grand opening of our algae uh, plastic <laughs> facility, <laughs> which uh, almost killed us. Uh, you know, we we had built uh, a business model around using you know uh, polymers like polypropylene and polyethylene. To make compounds, and all of a sudden, almost overnight, those prices uh, dropped in half. And you know, it wasn't like we were we had that much margin to begin with. Material businesses typically aren't high margin businesses, um, and it's all about volume. So very quickly, the margins went away, uh, and the volume requirements are just massive. And so we 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 almost as a company we almost we almost failed uh, right out of the gate. <laughs> um, so, but we were fortunate. We we did, and we hung on. We we retooled a bit, and we brought in uh, advanced manufacturing. We started making three D printer filaments for a specialty market. So it was a higher value product going into high value, um, you know, more innovation oriented customers, and uh, that landed our brand name, our materials, the our, our story, our mission on the desks of innovators all over the in, all over the world. Um, I mean, we weren't particularly successful <laughs> overall, but uh, it was a step, it was a major step. And it also taught us as a, as a, you know, as a, as a scientist and, and, um, and, and entrepreneurs, we, we built a manufacturing team, we built a marketing team, we built a sales team, we, we had products on Amazon, um, we had all the sourcing, uh, we had a sourcing team. So we, we really built out this supply chain for getting algae out of these environmental restoration projects, getting it into our factory and then allowing us to formulate the algae with a variety of different polymers that added value to our customers' products. And so, with the three D printing, you know, you're not really doing mass production with that. This is kind of conceptual stuff. So we're we're dealing with the designers and the developers and just breaking their miss their conception about what can be done with algae. Uh, step, phase two was uh, was a reformulation, but really focused on same concept, but delivering a pelletized product to uh, innovators in the footwear space and essentially branded consumer products. These companies have sustainability initiatives. It was increasing. We got into it in 2015, 2016. We started reaching out to footwear brands. We started finding a lot of interest there. But then we realized the ultimate challenge, which is that they didn't actually really manufacture their products. They designed them, they spec them, but they didn't really make them. And the making all was occurring and is occurring in Asia. So it's China, Vietnam, Indonesia. And so us being in the U.S. put us at a major disadvantage because there really wasn't any manufacturing happening in shoes here in the U.S. So we decided that we, you know, to play in the, in the footwear game, you've got to be able to introduce your product to the factories that are making the shoes. And that started in 2016, a, a huge effort that we call Bloom. Uh, Bloom has become our brand, and we built a trading company in China. Uh, We have warehouses in Vietnam, uh, China, and here in the U.S., and uh, we work with over 200 partner factories now that are essentially foam manufacturing factories and footwear manufacturing factories. So uh, they're looking for sustainable materials, new innovative products that they can offer to their brands and to their customers and to the designers and developers. And so that has been a long and very challenging journey. Um, but now we're in a position where the customer, the brands, they can, if they want to use Bloom, it's not that hard to do. We we have integrated our material into the global supply chain in a way that it's relatively easy to get your hands on. If you're at least if you're a footwear brand. Um and now we've been expanding outside of that. We've been working with some other factories that make automotive parts or make yoga mats or make uh, you know bike gri- bicycle grips. Um, so uh, so yeah, so it's it's exciting now, you know, trying to really focus on footwear, but really fundamentally it's these branded consumer products that we see as being one of the most uh, uh, obvious opportunities for us as we scale up.
0: So are you harvesting and shipping overseas or you're also doing harvesting overseas?
1: Yeah. So the algae is coming from a couple different places. Uh, it started in California uh, with a utility company uh, that was using algae as a, in an innovative way, but in essentially raceway ponds. So imagine like a Talladega, you know, speedway or an Indy 500 speedway, but instead of it being asphalt, it's algae. <laughs> it's essentially a, a shallow pond uh, with raceway paddles, paddle wheels that move the water at, a, you know, a certain speed. And the ponds are only about a foot deep. So they're really shallow. And that was the, their final stage of treatment. And they would, on purpose, create an algae bloom in these in these raceway ponds and harvest the algae out of that. And that provided this polishing, which really reduced the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen and carbon being released back into the environment. So that was our first, uh, and that was being done at a, you know, at a decent scale. A couple million gallons of water per day was being used, run through that process. Um, so we, we started there. Uh, we also started with another company uh, called Clearaz that uh, is developing photo and has and is installing industrial scale photobioreactors, which is a more advanced version of it. it's, it's essentially a raceway tube or it's a raceway pond than a tube. Uh, it's a, it's a greenhouse system that has racking and you know three or four inch clear you know glass or or polymer tubes that run you know, really dense algae-laden water through them. And so the, the idea is to maximize the light absorption per, in, a, in a unit volume. And so you have a very small footprint facility producing a lot of algae. Um, so in, cl- in cases where it's cold, uh, you've got very young know, seasonality, or, um, or in cases where you don't have a lot of land, you really have a small footprint. You can't just you know, build out acres and acres of, of open ponds. Uh, you know then these these enclosed systems make a lot of sense they're more expensive but you do get a high quality high high output product um, but then in 2014 2015 the word kind of got out on what we were doing with algae and, and making products with it making materials with it and we started getting um approached by lots of chinese investors and companies and um, disinterest and it was really bizarre because we weren't soliciting that. Um, but what we found out was that there was a big algae problem in China. And it's not too far off what we're experiencing in Lake Erie and what we're experiencing in Lake Okeechobee. So it's just kind of that times two or that times three, um, which in algae terms is is, <laughs> is 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 not that far away when you grow exponentially, right? So we're, you know, we're having similar problems in the US, but in China, they've taken action. Um, they've taken major action and they've built out a network of large-scale water treatment facilities you know basically a a wastewater plant that would you know clean a small city or a small town is being bolted up to a lake uh you know by the by the dozens (laughs) and they have floating systems they have trailer mounted systems and um and the the goal is to essentially clean you know separate the algae from the lake pull out the carbon pull out the nitrogen pull out the phosphorus as part of that biomass and then also oxygenate the water as part of the harvesting process, and that's what they do: is they, they pump just like our process, they pump a bunch of air air bubbles into the lake water in a reactor offside the lake, and it supersaturates the water with oxygen. It pulls out the suspended algae particles, then um, thereby removes a lot of the you know ninety percent of the of the nutrient loading, and then the water is returned back through kind of a managed wetland area or, or, or pumped back into the uh, into the lake. Um, and so by doing the, that they're reducing the nutrient load and then, but they have all this algae and they were landfilling it. They were, they were spraying it on, on, you know, farmers fields. Um, they were turning it into, they're burning it, you know, turning it into charcoal. So they were trying a bunch of different things, but they saw the value in our approach because it, you know, now it's going into a, you know, to replace a highly refined and carbon intensive product like plastics, uh, you know, one-to-one. Uh, in some cases, at least in our master batch. It's about half and half algae and, and polymer. Um, now, finished products may be less. This depends on the performance and the color and all these other parameters. But um, so anyway, so now we're in a situation where those facilities exist. They were already producing a lot of algae. It was going to waste. It was rotting. It was degrading. It was you know, going in, you know, in some cases, just washing right back into the water <laughs> um, from from ne- neighboring agricultural fields. So by taking it and putting it into a durable product, that durable product can capture and sequester that carbon and nitrogen over a much longer period of time.
0: How durable is the end product compared to uh, commercial plastic?
1: So if we blend the algae with a compostable resin like PLA or PBAT or, or there's many others, the algae accelerates the rate of compostability or, or biodegradation once it enters the, in, that, that environment. So it's not going to break down on the store shelf or in your, your, in your closet or something like that. Um, but it will break down if it's, you know, mo- if the moisture's there, if it's warm, it's got to be over 115 degrees Fahrenheit typically. There's got to be a lot of microbes, microbes available, microbial activity. Uh, so in that situation, the algae is acting as a, a bit of a superfood to help degrade biodegradable materials faster and more complete. Um, however, when we blend them with durable materials, the goal is kind of the opposite, is to actually lock up that nutrient or lock up that carbon and in a way that hopefully you can get um, a, a longer sequestration period and use it to displace a carbon intensive product. So by replacing the oil-based plastic, we're actually getting a major benefit in reducing the greenhouse gas emission of that product's life cycle.
0: It's very interesting. So let's we'll switch gears here. Earlier you mentioned your work with trees and converting them to fuel, but. The crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. What drew you to this sector of almost, you know, the sustainability sector and what keeps you going? What's your motivation?
1: Well, you know, I mean, it started in fuels. I actually uh, started making biodiesel in 2006. I had a friend that worked at the Chick-fil-A and I got some free fryer oil and was like, all right, this is cool. We can actually make our own energy, make our own fuels. And I didn't even own a diesel vehicle, but I just thought it was fun to do. And so we made some and that kind of got me. Going and got me into this renewable energy area, and for me it was just this epiphany that you know we only have so much resources on the planet, you know that are easily accessible, and you know and a lot of these come with uh, negative environmental consequences, and so we've got to be very careful how we use the resources on our planet. And so I saw algae early on when I was in college as this. Kind of untapped resource this this frontier of biomaterials you know i mean back then you know soybeans was what everybody was talking about we were all going to be we were going to be running our our entire fleet of vehicles in the u.s on corn and soybeans and in 2007 i um i was really i mean even before that but particularly in 2007 i remember i was following this little company this little startup company out of california um that was promising to make this you know, high-performance electric sports car. And I was like, man, if those guys are successful and they can actually produce this, this is going to change everything. And the challenge that I see with that is that it's going to really eliminate the need for us to be burning fuel, burning hydrocarbons in our engines to move to move people around you know, places. Um, and, of course, the company was Tesla, right? And so I've been a huge fan of, of this innovative Disruptive approach to the market, particularly around thinking about problems in terms of first principles. And so, for me, algae was the ultimate first principle when it comes to biomass and comes to materials, because you know we need a source of raw materials. You know, electrification of vehicles is a huge, huge step forward. We're not going to be burning and releasing CO2 through that, but oil is used in a lot more situations than just you know being used in engines and internal combustion engines. Uh, is used in materials and polymers and specialties, you know, specialty chemicals. Uh, and so I, I saw algae really, p- for me, I pivoted in my mind out of the work that we were doing at the, at the university at the time, which was all biofuel centric, and really started thinking about, well, you know, what type of algae is already out there in mass quantity? Like what's the easiest algae to grow or to, to find? And what's that good for? Because what we found was that the algae that was easy to get, typically didn't have any oil in it. And everybody was after the oil. And so the idea of growing algae for oil was limited by the fact that you had to either genetically modify the algae. And so it's a very biotech and high risk proposition. And a lot of companies did that. I mean, there's still companies now, synthetic uh, genomics that's doing that. And um, But then the other approach is to Cultivate algae in, in enclosed reactors, so you're micro farming it in, you know, photobioreactors, and that was very capital expensive. So maybe more doable, but also super expensive. Payoff was not easy. So not, not that one of those to me resonated with a, a lean, mean startup, innovative approach. I needed something cheaper, and so when we looked at the this algae that was being used to clean water from these wastewater treatment facilities. It, we would grow, I mean, we would put maybe five or six different species that we found naturally, either in the water itself or in the dirt <laughs> behind our like our lab. Like it was just, you know, whatever grew the fastest was what we wanted. And the stuff that grows the fastest tended to have a lot of protein and tended to have a lot of, of minerals in it. And that led to a situation where we could use the material in thermoplastics because proteins by definition are polymer chains of amino acids so our process re kind of reforms and reorganizes these natural you know thermoplastic like materials these proteins in ways that we can get some rheological properties out of the biomass so we're not it's not just like we're adding a filler it's not just a calcium carbonate rock that's being dispersed into a polymer Rather, the algae is being converted into uh, a polymeric like state I mean it's not perfect trust me it's you know it's not the it's not the best polymer ever we get that but at 10 20 maybe even 30 percent we've been able to meet the specifications of some of the highest running uh, you know performance midsoles and soles for running shoes of some of the top brands in the world so and then you look at the volume you look at the impact that switching over 10 20 30 percent of an entire industry can create it's it's enormous it's really enormous
0: well i've never heard anyone speak as passionately about algae as you have and absolutely changed my view on algae earlier you mentioned challenging journey what's some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself on your journey
1: oh wow uh well certainly you need perseverance and you need passion you've got to be genuinely obsessed with making this work or else you'll give up i mean we've been at it 11 years you know that was just as a company. Before that, it was th- over three years in in kind of uh, educational academia, and it's really hard, especially when you're start you're trying to start a company. But I, I would say that I you know, I'm encouraged now more than ever. We we made it through some dark times. We made it through uh the you know that we I feel like we've, we're just now kind of crossing what they call as the chasm of death for startups where. You know, the rubber meets the road. You've got to make sales. You've got to be able to pay the bills. It's you know, it, you know, it's not just a uh, uh, you can't rely on grants and and a good idea anymore. It has to be commercially viable. And for us, you know, as complicated as as simple as our concept is, it has turned out to be a quite complicated business to execute because there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of External pressures. Uh, I mean, we're competing against the Exxon Mobiles of the world in a way, um, but we're also partnered with the Exxon Mobiles in the world in a way. I mean, we we rely on polymers to to make the products. So as companies and big companies are making more sustainable polymers, uh, that gives us an opportunity to you know to, to blend algae with it and to find ways to make the algae more functional and more compatible and get in you know and, and displace more of the base polymer. The big advantage that I think we've seen in the way that we've done it is we've decided that we don't want to be just a commodity at, you know, at this point. Maybe in the early days, that's kind of the thought process. Hey, we're going to make this, this thing, this widget. But to get the word out, to achieve the long-term mission and vision of raising awareness around circularity, around recycling, around algae and its potential – we, you need a voice, you need a face, you need a brand, you, you need that DNA out there where people can connect with what your purpose is and understand it across different, you know, market spaces. So, um, so we, that's the reason we created the Bloom Sustainable Material brand is to uh, help a help the brands rely on a third party technical component or ingredient in their product that's focused on sustainability you know over the years you know there's gore tex and intel and there's a lot of te- a lot of in- technical ingredients that are very performance or functionally oriented but we we didn't really see a sustainability oriented functional ingredient for a product and so i think that's kind of what we're trying to pioneer here is if you see the bloom brand in a product you know that that company is working with the innovation teams and with uh, the sustainable materials mm-hmm that are gonna be essential for uh, you know, creating products that have a low environmental footprint and impact.
0: Well, you mentioned long-term. Let's leap into the future. It's 2030. If Forbes or Business Week were to write a headline about Algex Bloom, what would you like it to read?
1: I would like to be remembered or seen. You know, our company needs to be seen as the, you know, the up-and-coming sustainable material company. We can help big companies, we can help small companies, Make strategic and educated decisions to improve the life cycle impacts of their products in a methodological way, and so we can work with brands to calculate the improvements in their carbon footprint and how much water they've cleaned. You know what's the real impact, and help consumers understand that when brands are trying to improve their supply chain, it's not it's not an easy thing to do, but we need to be purchasing products that lean and move towards that long-term objective. We're, we're not going to solve everything you know, tomorrow. There's There's no silver bullet per se for sustainability because it is such a diverse topic. But if we could help the industry, particularly around footwear, using shoes and consumer products as a mechanism of storytelling and infusing these concepts and practices of circularity and sustainability into everybody's lives in a way that they kind of understand Hopefully that will result in, you know, other startups, other companies, other industries, other recycling loops being established that can dramatically accelerate our adoption and movement into this, you know, future, you know, circular economy.
0: I agree with you. And my last question, and this could be professional or personal, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom, or even perhaps recommendations with the audience, what would it be?
1: For us, it's been really uh, important to have a committed team. I mean, we have a core team of people. We're not a big company. We're a small company. We've had some uh, growth and we've had some contractions over the years. But being able to rely on your team to execute and to innovate and to and – and I guess the, the other part that we've, always, we've struggled with is on the commercial side, the brand building side. So any, if you're a company out there that's trying to bring a new – sustainable material to market you know it's not easy and it takes a long time and there's lots of constraints because it's it's typically a volume-based business there's a lot of scale-up constraints and so i would recommend you know which is what we tried to do was really leverage the customers identify that problem in the market the brand the company that seems to be the best fit for you and you know, try to work with them really go do stuff at cost like you really want their feedback you really want to understand if your technology is a fit for them, and so whether that's applying for one of there's incubator accelerator programs that are you know maybe eligible for that can help bring you into a new industry. Like we've participated in some of those, uh, both kind of generic accelerators as well as some very you know, brand and company specific accelerators. I've seen a lot more of that recently, and you know I they've been we've had a lot of interest and a lot of success with those. Just being able to really understand what the customer is looking for and uh, and get the those connections with the right people in the organization to, to evaluate it and to hopefully be your champion to get it in and, and get into the market.
0: Ryan, I appreciate you sharing that. And I look forward to watching the continued growth of Bloom and catching up with you again soon.
1: All right. Thank you, Raj. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for, thank uh, you. for asking these questions. Very interesting.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media, where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the cleantech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.